What is the economy? What are the different ways that people meet and provide for their needs? And how does the economy exist in the living world? And how does it put pressure on the living world? And what would it mean to have an economy that could meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? That would be the first question into a completely different education. And I think today's students deserve it. Welcome to Sustainable 77 and welcome to the show which I think has taken the most takes to do an introduction because <laughs> this is about take 17 because you keep being an idiot. That's not fair. I'm just trying to add a bit of levity to what would otherwise be a sober and boring podcast. It's not my fault. It's not my fault that you need me to cheer you up. This is Sustainable. We are your weekly environment podcast all about people and the planet and why, despite everything, we are determined to have a chuckle about something, right? And what have we got coming up this week? Oh, we have got an extremely exciting and very, very eminent guest on the show. We went to interview uh, the wonderful, wonderful economist, Kate Rayworth, who describes herself as a renegade economist because she talks about real things, not made up things. Donuts. And specifically, she talks about donuts. Donuts are real things, aren't they, Dave? Uh, they are real things, mate, but I'm pretty sure she means it figuratively. And it's very clever, and it's a really clever way of thinking about things, and she's written a book, and the book is out, and it's called Donut Economics, not Economics, thank you very much. Economics. Economics. And it's just come out. So Kate is, she's been all over the world, she's worked at Oxford and Cambridge and in Stockholm, and she worked at Oxfam for years and years and years, and she really is one of the most impressive people what I have ever spoken to about, like, alternative economics and things Economics. like that. And uh, so, yes, so the usual disclaimer before we start, that we do work for environmental charities, but these are very much our own views and Kate's own views. So if you've got any beef with anything what you hear, take it up with us, uh, not with anyone that we work for. Otherwise, we shall get stapled to the floor and used as a donut hoop. Yes, uh, so do, do not complain to Kate. Do, do not, do not complain to anyone who employs yeah, us. Just give us uh, a uh, ring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so, we are here with Kate Rayworth, who is an extremely eminent person and renegade economist. Uh, doing work in all sorts of fancy places like Oxford, Cambridge, Rome, Stockholm and Anglia Ruskin. Uh, welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. Uh, what's, a, what's a renegade economist when it's on? Well, the reason I call myself a renegade economist is because when I studied economics at university 25 years ago, after four years, I was too embarrassed to call myself an economist. I thought it was the most embarrassing thing to have qualified as. So I walked away and refused to use that word. But 25 years later, I find myself happy to say I'm an economist as long as I can say I'm a renegade one. And then it feels OK. So I think a renegade economist is somebody who discovered that the economics they were taught is in no way fit for the future. And they're deciding to be part of rewriting economics. So um, is economics a thing? Because I was reading 
uh, an article which is, was saying that we need to kind of um, believe certain fictions like religion and nations and money in order to continue as a society. And it struck me that economics might fall into that category, that it is essentially a fiction, a thing we make up to explain things. Does that mean it's not real? Ooh, deep in on the philosophy straight off. <laughs> Blimey. Well, I, I just go back to the roots of economics. In ancient Greek, it means household management. And when I go back, when, when I think of it defined like that, then it feels very approachable and feels like something we really need. But when we talk about economics uh, as, an, as a noun, like the way we do, it's often people say, well, there's no such thing as economics. There's all these different kinds of economics. You can't criticise economics in general. So I say, OK, what I'm, what I'm wanting to take on is the economics that's, let's call it Econ 101. It's the, it's the introductory course to economics that lots of people study a little bit of. Um, it's what I, so I studied PPE, politics, economic philosophy. Uh, it, most of the British government, members of parliament, have studied that same degree in the US many students do Econ 101. It's seen, it's, it's seen as a sort of good thing to have in your degree, whether you go on to be a doctor or a journalist or a politician or an activist. So to me, economics, that the economics that shapes the world is the economics that comes out of Econ 101, and that's the most important one. So you have, uh, you've decided to do your own sort of economics, what you've called a donut. You've got donut economics. What's a donut got to do with anything? Um, and tell us, yeah, tell us about your donut. Yeah, I know, donut. Sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't <laughs> it? Sometimes you've got to, um, in the face of impending disaster and gloom, you've just got to have a bit of a sense of humour and pull out something as silly as a donut. So <laughs> the donut is a diagram. It just happens to look like a donut, the kind that has a hole in the middle. And Five years ago, I sat down to draw, to try and draw a picture of what would thriving in the 21st century look like. And it came out looking like a donut. Obviously. Of course. Oh, <laughs> obviously. Junk food all the way, right? Was Homer Simpson involved? Oh. It sounds like he was. I know. I, people say I should go into some sort of branding partnership with him, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. Marge, dear, would you kindly pass me a donut? Donut? What's a donut? <laughs> think, of the, think of a donut with a hole. In the middle of that hole is a place where people are falling short on life's essentials. It's a place where people don't have enough food, water, decent housing, education, health care. So we want to get everybody out of the donut central hole and into the crusty sweet donut itself. But we also don't want to go beyond its outer crust because beyond there, we're overshooting our pressure on the planet's boundaries. We're putting too much pressure so that we're causing things like climate change, ocean acidification, um, biodiversity loss, ozone layer depletion. So it's a balancing act, getting everybody out of the hole in the middle, because that's deprivation, but not overshooting the outer crust, because that's environmental degradation. So the space in between, the donut itself, you could call it an ecologically safe and socially just space for humanity. It's the space in which all of us can thrive. If I say it in the simplest terms possible, it's meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. And it's the shape of a donut. I can't tell you how bad this has been for my career. I mean, the number of people who walk up to me and say, oh, you're the donut lady. And I think, what have I done? What have I done? But um, it also has traction because people say, that's so crazy. What is this donut? And so it gives you a chance to talk about economics, which sounds a bit scary, to people who think, if you stuck a donut in front of it, this must be a little bit more accessible and fun. And so it, it's helping widen the economic conversation, which I think is incredibly important. So what you've just explained sounds pretty sensible, sounds, I don't think many people listening to this podcast, or indeed many people in general would disagree that people who don't have enough 
um, need to have enough and the planet's natural inherent boundaries shouldn't be um, gone beyond. So why is this needed? Why, why do we need to set this out? I mean, who are you trying to convince of this? Yeah, so that's a really good point, you see, because when I say it like that, oh, we need to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, that's not very contested, right? That sounds quite good. Um, but when I drew this picture, what amazed me, because in a way I was, I was drawing a picture of that, but the reaction to this picture, so many people started showing it and using it. And I heard it was being shown in China. It was being used at the United Nations. It was being used by companies. And it amazed me because I realized the power of pictures. That, and I went, I went to the United Nations and I was presenting it to lots of the different delegates. And I was presenting it to the, the head of the Argentinian delegation, which was the head of the group of 77 developing countries at the time. So they were the leaders of all the lower income countries. I remember she tapped it with her finger and she said, this is how I've always thought of sustainable development. I've just never seen the picture before. Wow. And I realised then that to tell stories, we need pictures, right? Think back to your childhood, Winnie the Pooh, the cat in the hat. Our favourite stories, the ones that stick with us, have the most memorable, enduring pictures. So if we want to tell a different economic story, I think we need new economic pictures. And it was, it was this experience of creating this donut picture and being amazed by the reaction to it that sent me back to my economics textbooks to say, what other pictures have shaped the way I think? I mean, what was I taught? Not in the words and the equations was what we're told economics is, all the equations and mathematical. What are the pictures that are sitting alongside it and have they shaped and limited what I can see or not see? And that's where I got really excited about the possibility of, if we're going to rewrite economics, let's redraw the pictures too. So what are those pictures? Are they more sort of pancakey or more kind of <laughs> uh, like a big frothy pint of beer or, or what? What do you think the pictures that people have, if you're a, you know, horrible person in government who just thinks spreadsheets, we talk a lot about policy by Microsoft Excel and how the only thing that matters is spreadsheets. What picture do they have in their head or don't they have one? And is that kind of the problem? I think we all have a lot of pictures in our heads, actually. So I'm going to ask, have you guys ever studied economics? Uh, yeah, I have. Okay. What was the first diagram you learned? Uh, supply and demand. Thank you very much. That is exactly the same answer that everybody gives. So that's a little picture of two sticks crossing in X shape. That picture is the first picture that's laid down in our heads. And it's incredibly powerful because... So the first, first diagram we learn when we're studying household management, let's think of it broadly, is supply and demand. So what's going on there? First of all, the first thing you're being told is, well, the economy is actually the market. Is it Really? Is it just the market? I think the economy is a lot more than just the market, but already our attention is being focused on the market. And it's about the way that prices make the market balance. In fact, if you go back to where that picture came from, it was drawn by William Stanley Jevons in the 1870s, and he and a bunch of other economists really wanted to make economics a science as reputable as physics. They saw the genius of Isaac Newton. They saw his physical laws of motion and the, the way he described the, the, the role that gravity plays in pulling objects to rest. And they said, right, we're going to make economics a science like physics. And so they literally wrote, just as gravity pulls objects to rest, so prices pull markets into equilibrium. And they thought that by making an analogy that they would make it science. Well, that was the wrong kind of science. But that analogy has stayed with us and that desire to pin things down. So this is an example of the power of a simple diagram. We're taught it and we're taught how the supply and demand curves derive and how markets work and how markets clear and the price is right. But actually, it goes back to a false desire, a kind of fake physics back in the 1870s. 
So if you could start economics again today, I would never start a first lecture by saying here's supply and demand, this is how markets clear. I'd say, what is the economy? What are the different ways that people meet and provide for their needs? And how does the economy exist in the living world? And how does it put pressure on the living world? And what would it mean to have an economy that could meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? That would be the first question into a completely different education. And I think today's students deserve it. So, related to that, um, it seems almost unchallengeable, although perhaps less so in the last few years, um, the, that economic growth is essential, is a good thing, um, that is the only way to lift everybody um, out of, well, lift those who are in poverty out of poverty. Um, what is it? A rising tide carries all boats, all of that sort of stuff. It also seems fairly incontestable that to some extent, ever rising growth means ever greater pressure on the natural world and its resources. Um, so how do you respond to that? What, what, what would your lesson one look like in response to that, that question? So I wouldn't come at growth in lesson one, although I'd say that actually... In, in, so I studied economics for four years at university and growth, the pursuit of GDP growth, was just the implicit goal. We never explicitly questioned it. In fact, I only realised years later that we never asked... Is growth always necessary? Is it always possible? We had to, in my in my economics course, I remember this guy sticking his hand up in like lesson two or three, and saying to the professor guy something like, "Well, what happens if what happens if growth stops?" And the professor guy said, "Well, it hasn't yet." <laughs> and, and that was that was the beginning and end of that of that question. Well, I went back to one of my economics tutors twenty five years later, and I said to him, "Do you think growth is always?" Uh, possible? And he said, yes, it must be. And I thought, wow, that's a really weird answer, that growth must always be possible. So that's partly what made me start investigating this, because I realised these taboo questions had never been asked. So I wouldn't start with growth. I would start with, what is it we actually want an economy to do? We want it to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And I think the two design principles that we need to put at the heart of 21st century economics are to make an economy distributive by design, which means that the structure of companies, the structure of the state, the structure of taxes, the structure of ownership of land, of ideas, means that the value created by people is far more equitably shared amongst those who created value. Let's think of an employee-owned company, right, rather than a shareholder-owned company. The value created in an employee-owned company is more equitably shared amongst those who created the value, the, sh- the workers, rather than a shareholder company, where it goes off to the shareholders. So that's it's got to be uh, distributive by design, sharing value, but also regenerative by design so that we don't use up Earth's resources as our current linear degenerative economy does. It takes Earth's resources, makes them into stuff, we use them for a while and then throw it away. And that cuts against the cycles of life. We need regenerative design, which uses Earth's resources again and again and again, so we never use them up. So I would start with those principles. How can we create economies that are distributive and regenerative by design? And then... GDP, which is just the monetary value of goods and services sold in a year, for sometimes that's definitely going to be going up. Sometimes it might oscillate, it might flatten out. It should be a response variable, responding to the pursuit of an economy that's regenerative and distributed by design. It's not what drives us, it's the variable that responds up and down. So I have no problem with GDP going up if the economy is becoming more distributive and regenerative. The problem we've got today, though, is over the last 100 years particularly, our economies have become structured financially, politically, 
um, and socially so that they depend upon and demand continual growth. I'll give you two examples. The financial system, every financier's first question is, what's the rate of return? They're pursuing the highest possible rate of return, so that demands a growing system. And then governments, every government that's a member of the G20, the group of 20, the most powerful countries in the world that meet every year, no government wants to lose its place in that p photograph that's taken. But if you, if you would say, well, I, my country, we're going to create a country that's thriving rather than growing, you risk being pushed out of that G20 family photo by the next emerging powerhouse. So every government sees its geopolitical need to keep growing, to keep up with the others who are keeping growing. So those are two of the ways we're locked in. And we need to, economists who are willing to take on this taboo issue of how could you create an economy that thrives without having to grow? How could we unlock these dependencies? Listening to you talking, it sounds like you're talking about fundamental changes to how the economy works. But is that is that true? I mean, how do you are there small things you can start doing that get you on the path to this, or is it the sort of thing that you need some sort of Russell Brand style revolution and everyone you know, and then replacement by government by the renegade economists? What what could you? How do you start something like this? Well, to pick up on your Russell Brand, I think it's evolution, not revolution. Because going, um, if we think of the economists in the 1870s who were trying to make economics like physics, they had a very mechanical view of, the, of what they were looking for were the laws of economic motion. Um, they were looking to find the ways, apparently the deterministic ways in which economies evolved. And they thought that economies would get more unequal before they would become more equal. They would get more polluted before they would be cleaned up again. That is not the way that economies move and, and change. They don't have to follow these laws. They, and one of the new ways of thinking economically, and I think is very empowering, is evolutionary economics, thinking of the economy as a complex system which is ever evolving. And the reason I think that's empowering is because it means that everything that each one of us does is part of that evolution. You know, the butterfly effect, that the, the, the wings of a butterfly flapping in one part of the world could cause the winds of change on the other side. Just the same, when somebody in one town sets up a complementary currency that is a new kind of money that's designed to actually enable flow amongst local traders. They're starting a trend that somebody else might copy elsewhere around the world, and it takes off. When one group in South Africa starts calling for a universal basic income in their country, and then others elsewhere, and then a network happens, and then suddenly universal basic income is part of the national conversation, international conversation, in a way that 10 years ago it seemed completely mad. So... The economy is ever-evolving, and each one of us can be part of that evolution. And even in our own daily lives, not just in the way that we shop or eat or travel, but in the way that we volunteer and invest and protest, each one of us is shaping the future of the economy. And many of the examples of things I'm talking about, employee-owned uh, companies, they exist already. You see, distributive designs out there, the creative commons, people putting their new ideas, not copywriting and patenting them, but the, giving them a, a, a Creative Commons license, that is part of what I see as the evolving edge of the economy, and we can all contribute to it and make it build that critical mass for change. So how does that um, actually land when, like you say, everybody employed by the government or other in elected office has gone through this kind of very standardised supply and demand, this is what's important, growth at all costs, education. And, um, I mean, and the stuff we talk about on this podcast in terms of the natural world, the E in PPE has never been ecology, it's always been economics. How do, how do these ideas land with a generation of people who fundamentally don't get it 
is it just gradual change we're looking at here and how does that tally with the very pressing crises that we're seeing in terms of climate change biodiversity loss inequality all the rest of it right so what do you do when you've got a generation of policymakers in power internationally who have been schooled in what i think of as 1950s economics um well there are two ways you can go one you can use the language that they've been schooled in so and and i often think that people who are trying to who are facing policymakers today and trying to win policy change right now will use that language so they'll talk about the value of natural capital biodiversity offsetting biodiversity <laughs> offsetting uh, no. eco- the, the, the value of ecosystem services we price everything and we bring it into the monetary accounts because we're trying to speak to the language and the mindset of today's finance ministry you know i respect that because there are people who have to do those jobs and try and save this forest now and they are working with the language of power now there is however a danger that in winning that little battle you are increasingly losing the war because you are framing the natural world and community value more and more in economic financial terms and in a sense you're handing over the decision making over it because you've put it into numbers and then the decision makers could say well this is now part of our calculations so i see that as a short term strategy personally i'm just for the long term i'm think i want to think about the whole 21st century that's why the subtitle of my book is seven ways to think like a 21st century economist let's look out and imagine well recognize that there's going to be more than 10 billion of us on the planet this year this year really? ah. <laughs> this century <laughs> this century so suddenly seems to be coming out of us very fast um there's going to be more than 10 billion of us on the planet this century how the heck are we going to make sure we can all thrive within the means of the planet because we are not on track for that so i prefer to go for the long route and to do that one i care passionately about the generation that are currently being educated the the 18 19 21 year olds those at taking a level at school a level um economics studying a, uh, economics at university it makes me furious that they are still sitting down in their first lecture and being taught here's supply and demand i mean talk about an education that's not fit for this century and the, the brilliant thing is the students know it and that's why there's a student movement rebelling the very people who've dedicated years of their lives to studying this subject are turning around saying i actually know that what you're teaching me is not equipping me for the future and i demand a better education so i'm passionate about working with the generation of students but you also need to start providing a language for the current generation of policymakers because of course many policymakers know that the framing they're using isn't right if you listen um not in recent years because brexit and trump have driven us i think back into a very basic language of growth but say 5 or 6 years ago many of the leading politicians were trying to nuance growth they would talk about sustained growth or sustainable green fair smart shared growth adding all these adjectives in front of it well that's a sign of a concept that's ripe to fall So we need to give them instead of just letting them add all these nice adjectives in front of growth find new language talk about a thriving economy talk about living well within the means of the planet and I know there's a lot of organizations who are putting a lot of energy into creating that new language so that there's words to turn to when the current words fail So you we haven't really talked about your book. You've got a book what has come out called It's called Donut Economics: Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Very good. Uh what do you write a book for? That's my question. Um 
Everyone's sick of experts, right? And writing a book would have taken a long time. I imagine you don't just fire it off. And did you, have you ever caught yourself thinking, maybe it'd be better if I went and stood outside Boris Johnson's house and threw paper planes at him rather than spending all this time writing a book? How do, I guess I'm interested in, in writing books and whether you think it changes anything. Mm. I never imagined I'd write a book. I don't think of myself as a book writer. I'm married to an author who writes book after book after book, and I never thought that was going to be me. I worked for more than a decade for Oxfam at the front lines of campaigning. I was in the research team. I loved writing research reports, and we'd campaign. Um, and I actually left that job, which was my job of my lifetime, really, and I loved it, because I believed that the most effective piece of advocacy I could do was to write a book. So to, for me, writing this book is a piece of advocacy, because... I wanted to go back to the roots of my economics education. I wanted to examine the images that had been put in the back of my head without my realising they were there. I wanted to take them out and I wanted to replace them with pictures that I thought were worthy of a 21st century economic education. And I realised that if you want to be able to talk about economics, either you're the director of something, you know, the director of la 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 la, or you could be author of la 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 la. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go for this one <laughs> because I can then just talk about the ideas and it's a chance to put down longer than a particular campaign report would allow me to put down my ideas and to, to re-educate myself and then to spend the next couple of years, which is what I'm now setting out to do, presenting those ideas. So I'm a, I'm a sort of walking, talking advocate and I'm using the writing a book as a vehicle. I haven't regretted a minute of it, actually. It's been a, it's been a ride and it's been really hard in, in, at times. But I came out the other end and I'm, I'm just now really looking forward to working with economic students around the world um, who are desperate for these kinds of new ideas and working with educators trying to get this into, for example, the International Baccalaureate. Can we get these kind of new economic ideas in there? Seeing where the opening points are for, for pushing forward um, new economic thinking and chucking out the old. Kate, thank you so much for your time. So tell, tell our listeners how they can follow you and see all your cool videos and things that you've got, which are brilliant, and how they can have a donut. Oh, are there still going to be donuts in a world where we're doing donut economics, by the way? Whoa, hang on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> They'd have to be very healthy. <laughs> I'm sure I'm on board. Mm. Not sure I'm on board with this idea anymore. You had me right until that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you all, there's always room for having a bit of fun. Um, Yes, there will be donuts in the future. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Kate Rayworth and I have a website, my name, www.katerayworth.com. And on there, actually, as you just mentioned, I've got a lot of videos. So one of the things I really want to do is make bring economics to life in animation, make it fun, witty, snappy, something you'd actually want to forward to your friends. So I've had the privilege of working with some of the world's best stop-motion animators to make little one-minute videos about the seven ways of thinking. recognises that our brains are wired for empathy, cooperation and mutual aid. That instead of being fixed, our wants change as and when our values do. And far from being dominant over nature, we're deeply... Go and have a look at those. Um, send them on to your friends. Use them in class. Share them with your teachers. Get them into your economics education if you can. Um, and I've got a Facebook page as well. Facebook.com slash DonutEconomics. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. So, 
that is just about it for another episode of Sustainable. Thank you so, 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 so much to the wonderful Kate Rayworth. Do check out her book. Do check out her website. Um, she's just got so much in her brain. It's worth you using all of your energy to access it because it'll be a better brain than yours. Thank you to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and into Twinkles this here podcast. And thank you, all. Not that you've done very much this week. All you did was just like ask some questions. I mean, yeah, but yeah, but what questions? <laughs> I mean, I think I think you can be pretty clear that you know Paxman. Frost, I can't think of any other famous interviewers, are going to be quaking their boots because they were in, they were good questions. Kate Roworth said I asked a philosophical question. She, she did, although I think that was a uh, sort of polite way of saying what sort of bloody question is that? Anyway, uh, anyway, we should be back next week. In the meantime, get in touch with us. Let us know if you like the show, uh, anything you want to hear, anything, etc., etc. At the Babble Wagon on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook. Just search Sustainable or drop us an email to hello at sustainable.fish and give us a review or like uh, subscribe you type thing on any of your podcast media of choice very good okay well we will see you next week for sustainer babble 78 in the meantime i'm off to gorge myself on donuts which i think was the message of kate's uh, book indeed so happy gorging i'll speak to you soon old fruit bye bye <laughs>